If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. I'm just about old enough to remember being a child and seeing grubby market stalls in Camden advertising a smorgasbord of substances that promised to alter the body and mind. More recently, psychedelics seem to have gone mainstream, from Prince Harry saying ayahuasca helped him to deal with Diana's death, to universities spending billions on researching hallucinogenics. Drugs have done a lot of harm, but they clearly shape the modern world for better or worse. In his lively new book Psychonauts, Mike Jay traces some of these ups and downs through the West's most influential thinkers, from psychologists like Sigmund Freud and William James to the work of Arthur Conan Doyle and Aldous Huxley. And I'm thrilled to discuss how drugs have shaped the modern world with him today. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kasia. Mike, I'm a historian, so I think that all answers to modern problems can be illuminated by the past. What I never realised, though, before reading your book was how recent the negative connotations of the word drugs are. So what did they mean in the 19th century? Well, drugs in the 19th century meant what it had always meant and what it still means today in sort of terms like super drug, for example, just means all medications, you know, it's prescribed by doctors or bought in pharmacies. And the way in which we use drugs now with scare quotes to mean a particular subset of drugs, which is, um, I would say, specific, but it's not very specific. It's quite hard to describe. It kind of means intoxicating drugs, but it also sort of means illegal drugs, but obviously not all intoxicating drugs and so on. Uh, That was really a creation of the early 20th century. And it wouldn't have made sense in the 19th century because so many of the things that we now call drugs, like cocaine or cannabis or heroin, you could buy over the counter in pharmacies in the 19th century. So, uh, you know, just alongside all other analgesics and sedatives and stimulants, they were just part of that category. So it's only in the 20th century that, scare quotes, drugs became a thing. I find that fascinating, just the thought that you could pop into Superdrug and buy (laughs) any, like, you know, number of, of, of drugs that we now associate, as you say, with really negative connotations. I think also a lot of our listeners will know the phrase, the war on drugs. So drugs will be associated with the idea of social problems as well as the substances that they are. Yeah, definitely. If you look at the very sort of first uses of the word drugs, you can see that the words that are being elided there are kind of dangerous drugs or, you know, sort of drugs that should only be used by a doctor. But it also means drugs used by ethnic minorities, you know, and then pretty rapidly after the drugs were prohibited in the 20th century, it came to mean illegal drugs. So I think that word drugs has all these 
connotations, you know, which are kind of social and racial as well as medical and criminal. One thing I find fascinating is how the scientists of the 19th century acted in very different ways to how we imagine scientists acting now. So there was much more of an impetus of trying drugs out on yourself. Why do we think that so many thinkers and scientists were so keen to try out drugs? And one of the kind of gruesome examples you paint is uh, with Isaac Newton. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. That's a great example, as you say, early on in the Royal Society at the very beginning of what we think of as modern science of uh, Isaac Newton when he was studying uh, light and colour. He noticed that if you sort of jam your finger right in behind your eyeball, then you get um, these weird kind of colours and sort of visual distortions. And he drew a diagram of this and recorded his experiment in his notebook so, you know, so other people could do it. And he observed that basically... What was happening was that if you indented the curvature of the eyeball, then you got optical distortions. But there was always from the very beginning, you know, the Royal Society, obviously in the beginning of science, it was all about experiment. Everything had to be demonstrated by experiment and experiments always had to be witnessed and repeated. But everybody realised from the beginning there were some classes of um, evidence and some phenomena that you you know, you couldn't really demonstrate objectively because they only happen in the mind, you know, things like perceptions and sensations. So what Isaac Newton was doing, it was a real thing. You know, he was describing it accurately, you know, as opposed to falsely. But also these colours and distortions were only happening in Newton's head. So you had to find a different way of describing them and of doing the experiments. And from that point on, if you were interested, I mean, a, a lot of those kind of things that Newton did, we can now do with technology and instrumentation, you know, and that's the story of modern science. But if you're talking particularly about drug experiences or subjective experiences, you're not getting them, you know, you know, uh, brain imaging and all those sophisticated tools we have today. You know, they're telling us a lot about what's going on the brain while the experience is happening. But if you want to know what the experience is like, what it feels like, how it changes your perceptions and sensations, there's only really one way to do that, which is to take the drug yourself. And, you know, all through this very formative period of science, when people were starting to understand how the mind worked and investigating the unconscious, then obviously a lot of people who are interested in these uh, recesses of the minds that you couldn't uh, normally access, and when they discovered that there were drugs that you could take that uh, allowed you to experience this directly. Of course, they did it themselves. One of the things that you kind of lay out for the readers is neurasthenia, which is a little bit like burnout, modern day burnout. I, I imagine a lot of people who are feeling the kind of the weight of contemporary life at the end of the 19th century and really struggling to come to terms and, and to deal with work, industrialization, all of these factors around like social life. And one of the people who was struggling with neurasthesia is Freud. And he lays out his uh, use of cocaine quite famously. Could you tell us a little bit about Freud's relationship with cocaine? Sure. Yeah. Well, neurasthenia was the disease of the age and probably quite a lot of what we'd now call anxiety and depression and uh, all kinds of other conditions. It was the idea that 
everything, modern life was too fast. We were working to the pace of the machine. Everybody was having to work too hard. It was too stressful. And the human brain and the human system didn't really have enough energy to cope with it. So there was a general search for things that could give us more energy. You know, very like today, you know, if you think of how heavily we lean on our espressos and Red Bulls and smart drugs, uh, you had the equivalents of that. And a lot of people were using sort of electrical stimulation, for example. But um, Sigmund Freud, uh, back in the 1880s, when he was a young medical researcher, heard about this new drug called cocaine, which seemed to uh, produce more energy in its subjects. And he read around it very widely and then um, ordered some up from Merck Pharmaceuticals and started using it himself and found that it had all kinds of amazing properties. I mean, first of all, it was uh, a local anesthetic, you know, so it meant that you could do eye surgery, for example, you'd never been able to do before. It was also very good for clearing out sort of bronchial and sort of sinus conditions. So it had various medical applications, but he got fascinated by the fact that it seemed to give him more energy and this kind of euphoria. It was sort of a mood swing. He was an incredibly hardworking researcher at that time, really drained, diagnosed himself with neurasthenia and found that when he started using cocaine it gave him more energy to do things and uh, lifted his mood he wrote in a very beautiful literary style actually as he never used later he wrote uh, a paper about it describing its effects and uh, what happened when he took it and this is right at the beginning of the point when cocaine was starting to be picked up by big pharmaceutical companies and become you know the magical drug of the sort of new pharmacy in the 1880s so uh, he was right in there at the beginning in ways that became problematic for him because he became you know a sort of big medical scientific expert and uh, he thought this was going to be his uh, big sort of breakthrough into uh, in, in, into fame and success. But the more people used cocaine, the more people discovered that uh, it was uh, very possible and indeed quite tempting to take ridiculously large amounts of it. And that if you did that, you created a kind of burnouts and uh, mental collapses far worse than the condition you were trying to treat. You write really evocatively about Freud's cocaine use. And then you ask the question, what could go wrong? <laughs> Freud really saw firsthand the effects of, of what cocaine addiction could do. So could you tell us a little bit about his friend Ernst von Fleischel, please? Yeah, that's right. And as soon as he tried it, he immediately thought of his friend Ernst von Fleischel, who was uh, a medical student with him at Vienna University, you know, very brilliant, but older than Freud. Freud really looked up to him. Von Fleischel was managing this chronic pain. He'd um, nicked her, his thumb during surgery and it had got infected. And, you know, he had terrible pain from a sort of amputation and he was taking a lot of morphine. And Freud thought, well, if you could move him onto cocaine, then maybe that would, um, you know, treat his morphine addiction. So he introduced cocaine to uh, von Fleischel, who uh, then started using it and started injecting it, which Freud had never done. Freud had always sort of drunk his cocaine in solution and at that point. And then von Fleischel said, you know, this is great. He stopped using morphine. Both of them went into print saying this is a miracle cure for morphine and opiate addiction. But it wasn't very long, about 10 days before Fleischel was taking enormous amounts of um, cocaine and staying up all night and being convinced he had bugs crawling around on his skin and being kind of manic and, you know, going back to his morphine as well. So uh, it was a disastrous experiment, which both of them had rushed into print with, uh, which which is then picked up by 
just at this time, you had a lot of sort of clinics for nervous disorders, private clinics where wealthy people would go. And the people running these clinics started to notice that there were a lot of people turning up who'd had sort of hypodermic needles, which you could buy in pharmacies and cocaine and use of it got completely out of control. So this was right at the time when the sort of modern notion of addiction was taking shape. And suddenly it was, uh, oh, my God, this drug is kind of making people addicted and crazy. Who recommended it in the first place? And all these fingers pointed back at Freud. And I think the irony of this is that Freud was an extremely sober and cautious young man, and he never used cocaine in large doses. He always only ever used a very small dose. And then he said, you know, I never have any temptation to take a second one. So he was completely blindsided when people started using it chaotically at high doses. There's a fascinating relationship that you chart between scientists and pharmaceutical companies. And pharmaceutical companies is something, and, and the issues around the selling of modern day drugs is something that I really associate as a modern phenomena, but you really root it kind of in a historic trajectory, really. And I was just kind of fascinated between that relationship between scientists, people like Freud, and pharmaceutical companies, and that tension between what they were both trying to do. Could you tell us a little bit more about the early pioneers and where pharmaceutical companies went. Yeah, that's I mean, this is just at the point that sort of the real huge boom in modern pharmacy, because earlier in the 19th century, pharmacists were usually kind of dingy little shops with uh, bottles of, uh, you know, sort of potions and powders that were measured out in little paper wraps. And this is just at the point where they were becoming these kind of gleaming, beautifully, brilliantly lit palaces of modern consumerism. And people like Burroughs Welcome were starting to produce, uh, instead of these generic powders, these branded, highly coloured little tablets and lozenges and things. So there was this enormous kind of promise. The pharmaceutical industry is very modern and it promised, of course, as it still does, to cure all our ills and ailments. But at the same time, all this was pretty much entirely unregulated. You know, there were basic regulations against poisons. Uh, but beyond that, you know, all these pharmacies were selling um, patent medicines, which all had very soothing names like sort of, you know, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup and things, but were actually packed full of morphine and um, opium and cannabis and cocaine, completely unlabeled. So on the one hand, they were these great temples of sort of modernity and, you know, the promise of modern science. But on the other hand, there was this anxiety that built through the late 19th century that hang on you know what are all these things that are being put in our pills and our potions who's regulating them and you know if these great claims are true this is really changing the human condition you know we're going to be able to live at different speeds and not sleep and not eat and uh, you know who's looking after this and regulating this so you know before you get the um, actual kind of laws against drugs and they get removed from the shelves in the 20th century there's a consumer campaign building about uh, you know wanting protection from these kind of super strong remedies that are being produced now you know in big factories you know so you know the marketing and the advertising are getting more aggressive just at the same time that the drugs are getting more powerful and nobody's kind of overseeing this at all just drawing on that as a huge sherlock holmes fan i was fascinated to learn just how embedded they were into his character but it was phased out his drug use and I wondered what that shows us about this story about the transition from the 19th century to the 20th century. 
it's a really nice, I think, really concrete way of following the story because uh, when Conan Doyle is coming up with the character of Sherlock Holmes in the sort of late 1880s, and then in 1890, you get the sign of four, the first novel, which has the famous scene where Sherlock Holmes is injecting himself with cocaine and Dr. Watson's being terribly disapproving and Holmes is explaining, well, you know, I just need lots of mental stimulation. And that's actually the reason that I bother to solve all these abstruse, complicated crime problems, because they're the only thing that keeps me away from my cocaine. So I think that's a fascinating aspect of Sherlock Holmes. By the mid 1890s, when uh, there were more and more scare stories about cocaine in the newspapers and more and more campaigns trying to, um, you know, make sure that it had to be properly labelled in patent medicines and things like that. It became a bit more difficult, and Holmes being a cocaine user was a little bit more, um, you know, edgy and not in a good way, a bit problematic. And Conan Doyle had already started backing away from the drug references in Sherlock Holmes stories. He kind of mentioned it less and less. And then in one of the stories that was syndicated in America, Dr. Watson says, I finally managed to wean Holmes off his terrible drug habit that was threatening to destroy his career which is a complete rewriting of the whole character. Aldous Huxley in Brave New World is very damning of drugs, particularly the drug Soma, which is kind of a mishmash, I guess, of different types of of drugs. The the effects are kind of nondescript and vague enough uh, that they could encapsulate anything, but it's used to suppress the population. So he's very damning of drugs in Brave New World, but then his opinion shifts slightly. Why and how does his opinion shift? It's a really good question. I mean, I think Brave New World is probably the encapsulation that we remember best of that, you know, progressive era, early 20th century view of drugs that they were, you know, these things pumped out by kind of big pharma for profits that made people sick and kind of stupefied everybody and that people got enslaved by. I mean, there's a big sort of spiritual movement there as well in the, you know, 1910s and 1920s of, um, you know, people kind of looking forward to a new spirituality and a kind of new heightened consciousness. But those people were not interested in drugs. They regarded drugs as one of those things that, as you say, were kind of keeping people down and keeping people sedated and asleep. That's Huxley's view at that point. And as he gets older, he gets more and more interested in um, esotericism and spirituality. And by the 1940s, he's writing books about his uh, progressive philosophy and enlightenment and meditation and Zen and Vedanta. But all that time, he's still saying, oh, drugs are not a path to enlightenment. Um, Drugs are the opposite. They're an enslavement. You know, they just uh, um, sedate and stupefy you. And it was only in the like, 1950s when you started to get more people talking about how um, some drug experiences could be quite like religious or spiritual experiences. And there's particularly uh, a British um, psychiatrist working in Canada called Dr. Humphrey Osmond, who's studying the uh, relationship, uh, the similarities between mescaline experiences and visionary experiences. And this tweaks Huxley's imagination. And he, uh, they, uh, Huxley and Osmond start corresponding. And Huxley says he'd quite like to try some mescaline, which he does. And he has a wonderful visionary experience, which he writes up in his book, Doors of Perception. 
And then he has, continues his correspondence with Osmond uh, after that, and they say, we need a new word for these kind of drugs, because we can't call them drugs, because the word drug has all these negative connotations, and we need something that doesn't associate this experience with pathology or mental illness. We need something that associates it with visionary experience and personal growth. And that's when the two of them come up with this word psychedelic. And then you can talk about psychedelics without mentioning the word drugs. And just as the word drugs has all these negative connotations baked into the word psychedelics from the beginning is all these ideas of mystical experience and personal growth and self-transcendence. It's all full of kind of positive connotations. Absolutely. Also, I was fascinated to learn that psychedelics, specifically kind of in the 1960s, when people start discovering mushrooms, they almost get reclaimed in the West as a kind of Western ancient medicine, like essentially like spiritual practice and medicine that hadn't really existed before. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've, uh, I've tracked this for a while because it fascinates me. And you do find quite a lot of 19th and even 18th century accounts of accidental intoxications with mushrooms, you know, mostly in medical reports where, you know, somebody's gone out collecting mushrooms and has made a soup and has eaten them and started to feel very unwell and then have strange hallucinations and a doctor's summoned and they're all given stomach pumps and everything. And, you know, so that was just regarded as a toxic experience, you know, and if you were sort of, you know, coming up on your magic mushrooms and you didn't know that there was such a thing as magic mushrooms, I think the first thing you'd think was, I'm feeling really strange. I've eaten a poisonous mushroom. I'm going to die. You know, and that was the way until the 1950s when um, there's this fascinating amateur mushroom hunter and banker called Gordon Wasson who uh, went out to Mexico and found indigenous Mazatec people in Mexico still using what we now call magic mushrooms for healing. So I think that when the magic mushroom became well known, the Mexican mushroom in the 60s, suddenly it was no longer associated with this sort of toxic experience. It wasn't like a poisonous toadstool. It was something that, you know, was ancient and and sacred and that people had used for spiritual experiences for millennia. And then when psilocybin, you know, this chemical was isolated from it, then suddenly it was all kind of had the imprimatur of science as well. So it was both kind of novel and scientific and also ancient and spiritual. And I think that really made the mushroom experience interesting to Westerners for the first time. Mike, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Oh, such a pleasure, Kasia. Thank you. Mike's brilliant book, Psychonauts, Drugs and the Making of the Modern Mind, is out now. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing that you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr. Kash Tomashevich. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Dr. Kasia Tomashevich. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Paris, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.